Uh, Jared did a great job continuing our study in the book of James, and as we near the end of chapter one, hopefully you've turned open to it there, uh, James presents us with the third test of a true believer. Now, I didn't frame them this way, but if you were paying attention, really this first chapter of James really does give you, maybe test is not a good way, but a marker of what a true Christian is. In verses 2 through 12, James talked about kind of the first mark of a genuine believer is his or her response to trials. And then last week, the second mark of a true believer, James said, is a Christian's response to temptations. And here as we get near the end, there's this third mark of a true believer, and that's a Christian's response to the Word of God. And we see that just in verses really through 19 through 27, but we're going to look at 19 to 21 this morning. One of the marks that James is putting out here is, of a true believer is how they respond when they hear the Word of God. And James says, when they hear God's Word, they respond. They, they get excited for it. They, they, well, we can use the word, they get stoked for it. As a matter of fact, one of these mar- reliable evidences of genuine salvation in a person's life is his or her hunger for God's Word. Psalm 42, Psalm 63, describe the hunger for God's Word as a deer that's panting for water, as a desert traveler who's thirsting for water. This is how the Christian longs for God's Word. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, like a newborn infant craves their mother's milk, so should Christians be after the Word of God. So, the metaphors that the Bible presents is like a deer, like a a Bedouin desert traveler, like a newborn child. There should be an innate thirst and hunger for God's Word because it brings nourishment and satisfaction to a Christian's soul. God's Word is pivotal. It is pivotal to the life of a maturing believer. You think of James' argument, if you're going to respond to your trials biblically, if you're going to respond to the temptations in life biblically, you're going to need more than just uh, willpower and discipline. You're going to need God's Word effectively operative in your life to give you what you need. So this morning, we're going to talk about listening to the Word, and next week we'll focus upon living the Word. And in these three short verses, James talks about listening to God's Word sincerely, purely, and genuinely. So, let's look at them one at a time. And really, um, listening to God's Word sincerely, that takes up two of our three verses just in this first point. But what I want you to see, though, is the argument that we're going to trace kind of runs backwards. So, at the end of verse 21 is James' driving point, receive with meekness the implanted Word. So, we know he's working backwards because verse 21, the first word is therefore, he's concluding something. So, so we trace it backward, and you look at the rest of verses 22 to 27, it goes on about applying God's Word to your life. But this is kind of a new argument in what James has been saying. He introduces this change of transition from trials and temptations to the Word of God. We see that in verse 18. He, taught, he hints at this transition when he says, of his own will he brought us forth by the Word of truth. And so, in verse 19, he begins to explain what that means, how we should respond to this Word of truth. And so, we're kind of tracing the argument backwards. So, the first point is listening to the Word sincerely. 
And in the second half of verse 19, James gives us three important commands if we want to be people who listen to the Word of God sincerely. Very easy. Uh, this morning during our elder prayer, there were, we just noticed that there are five ways to pray for our people right out of these three verses. And you can see them very clearly. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. Turn from all wickedness and evil and then have a desire to receive the Word of God. So, it's amazing when Scripture just lines it up for you on how to grow in your prayer life. Now, I'm not going to say anything more other than that, but it was neat to see just in three verses how God's Word supplies five practical ways we can pray not just our own selves, but for one another. Quick to listen, slow to anger, uh, slow, quick, to, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, turn from all wickedness, and receive with meekness God's Word. It's a great prayer life, great way to start your prayer life. So, he says these three commands, let's look at them one at a time. Quick to listen. Now, think about how important this was to James's people. Keep in mind, none of them turned open to the book of James on page 1011 in their Bibles. They didn't have Bibles the way we have them. There was no printing press. They were an oral culture. The gospel was handed down orally when they met together. This means having good listening skills were critical. If they did not listen well, they missed out. It's not an exaggeration to say that the people in James's time, as well as our own, who could listen well had a huge spiritual advantage. And the same is true today, isn't it? The same is true today because God in His purposes is determined to use the preaching of His Word to call His people, to save His people, to build up His people, to edify His people, and to evangelize His people. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.21, it is through the foolishness of preaching that God would save those who would believe. So, God's means have not changed even though our culture has. And when I uh, graduated from Bible college in the 90s, and even to this day, the debate rages, what's the purpose of preaching and is it still a valid form of communicating? And so, all the rage for a while in the the 90s and some part of the 2000, preaching kind of went away to more sometimes dialogue, in the round kind of thing, Q&A, preaching was seen as authoritative and, and out of step with culture and society. But God says that this is the means by which I am bringing my people out of the world and giving them life. And so, James's counsel to these people to be quick to listen wasn't just good advice for them in an oral culture. It's just as good as advice for us in a visual culture. We need to be quick to hear, quick to listen. But because we are a visual culture, we are at a substantial disadvantage, aren't we? The art of listening well is all but dead. Listen to Swiss psychologist Paul Tournier when he says, listen to the conversations of our world between nations, as well as between individuals. They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. That's so true. So much in our world, in our lives is being said, and so little of it is being heard, in part because we are a culture that is extremely busy. We don't have the time to process, to ponder, 
to reflect, to listen. Isn't busyness a badge of honor in our world? Right? You've heard it all the time when someone says, man, you won't believe how busy I am. What's the typical follow-up to a comment like that? Oh, man, I know what you mean. Or you think, you're busy, I'm busy, and then we go on and on and on. It's almost embarrassing. You almost feel unproductive if you were to say, "Ah, I'm I'm not that busy, (laughs) right? Your boss would not be pleased. People around you would feel like you're not being productive. But we value busyness to the detriment of being able to have the time to listen. And so we're, we, we value just being quick, 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 and all these other things, but not listening. So let me just, I was going to say quickly, but let me take my time and give five ways that we can actually become quick to listen, right? So number one, we need to work, deliberately work at listening to others, right? This this requires us to take an interest in somebody else. This requires us to not be willing for them, not waiting for them to stop talking so we can jump in, but actually listening to what they're saying, being aware of, of the content as well as the, the, the gestures, as well as the pauses, making eye contact, not looking around, not looking at your smartwatch or your smartphone or all these other things, but actually just listening to that person. Be deliberate about it. This doesn't come naturally to us. When you think about it, this is one of the easiest ways to love somebody, isn't it? I mean, this doesn't cost you a dime. It doesn't cost you anything but a few moments and attention. Learn to deliberately listen to someone when they speak and you type A personalities like me, this is something you've really got to work at. In Hawaii, we had an expression called Portuguese mouth. Um, It means Portuguese mouth because apparently Portuguese like to talk. Any Portuguese in the room? No? Okay. If you're like me and you like to talk, learn to listen. Number two, Similar to number one, center your conversations on other people, not yourself. Do not insert yourself into conversations in a world where everyone's trying to get on top of everyone else. Center conversations on the other person. Learn to ask them questions. Learn to learn about them. Ask them what concerns them, what excites them. What worries them? What do they get joy from? And when you ask them questions, really engage with their response. When when you ask them how your day was and they say it was good, ask them why. Or when you ask somebody, how was your day, and they they say it's fine, and you know how that usually goes. We We don't even think about it. We just say the word, ask them, when was the last time it wasn't fine? Center conversations on other people and learn to listen to them. You want to become a good listener. Number three, limit your exposure to the visual media, right? This one's so true. We need to limit our exposure to the very culture that works against becoming a good listener, and that's the visual media. Friends, if we don't control our time, media will. 
We need to limit ourselves as much as possible, and saying from a guy who's preaching from an iPad, I get that, but limit ourselves to the exposure of visual media. Mark Bowerlin wrote an amazing book. It's called The Dumbest Generation, how the digital age stupefies young Americans and jeopardizes our future, right? Everyone over 30 is going, yeah, I know. But, but what's interesting about this book is the research has come in. The research is in, in spades that we cannot multitask, we cannot have multiple screens and grow in our focus. Bowerlin records, I think he's a sociology professor from Indiana University, he says, the research is in, we are becoming a dumber generation because of our technology. We are not able to read and process and think anymore. Joel's nodding his head and laughing because he does research on this all the time. We need to get away as much as possible from the hyperlinked browsing world and culture we live in. And Bowerland's strongest suggestion is very interesting, and it's my fourth point. Bowerland's suggestion is number four. We need to learn to read carefully, and we need to read thoughtfully. Now you say, well, how is reading going to help you be a better listener? Because when you're reading, you're listening to the author. By reading his or her words, you're having to listen to what they're saying. And when you do that over and over again, it develops within you the ability to understand when people are making arguments, good arguments or bad arguments. I don't mean fighting, right? That's what we think of when we hear arguments. I mean reason disputations over matters of fact based on logical premises that come to a conclusion. That's an argument. But if you're always hyperlinking and browsing and emoting and having a two-minute video or Twitter feed, you don't know how to do that. So, Bowerland says, and God's Word testifies to that, there's something good about just reading and tracking and listening to the written page. Now, those four suggestions are true. Uh, most everyone will say that, some of that I got from Bowerland and others. So, let me give you one that's, that's germane to the Christian community we live in. Number five, be a good listener by preparing for worship and the hearing of God's Word. Become a good listener by preparing for worship and the hearing of God's Word. You know what that requires? That requires that you actually be here. I don't mean just at some time in the service. I mean actually be here when we're ready to go. Let me make this more concrete. If you're showing up at 9 o'clock for a 9 o'clock service, guess what? You're actually not here until 9.15. Now, I don't mean physically, you're physically here. What I'm talking about is mentally engaged, ready to do business with God. It'll take you at least 15 minutes. After all, when you got to scoot in, you got to say hello to everybody back and forth. You have to find out what's going on. By that time, the song's ended. We're into the next song, and it takes you while to get engaged. If you're showing up here at 9 a.m., you're not actually going to be here until 9.15. If you show up at 9.15, you're not here until 9.30. Friends, By the way, this is why churches used to do a prelude. Some of our older saints remember those days. A prelude was that time where mostly nobody would be in the chapel, but the organ would be playing. Do you know why they did that? So that you could come and center yourself from the craziness of the world so that you could actually bring all that to the presence of God and have His Word speak to you about that so that you could deal with that as you left. But if you come in hurried and busied and whatever it is and, and, and frazzled, you're missing out. Now, some people say, well, I, I got there for the sermon. As if the sermon 
was what Christianity is about. Friends, the sermon is part of the process of worshiping God. But here's the reality. You're still not here for the sermon. If you've not been here and been reviewing and preparing your heart to engage God, saying, what have I been struggling with? What's my life been like? Where are the areas I need God to work in my life? You're not really here for the sermon. The critical role of the music we play that Adam and the team lead us in is to help bring us to the point where we say, okay, God, I'm ready to do business with you. I'm ready to transact and act. How are you going to shape me and change me? So you just coming in for the sermon, not only is actually not effective for you receiving from the sermon, but it also reinforces the fact that Christianity is not just information, friends. Christianity is not just getting information from the sermon, right? As as if our problem was a lack of knowledge. No, that's not our problem. This is another reason why at Christ Community Church we don't live stream, the, you know, a lot of people are going to the live stream. We don't do that because we don't want to encourage people to think, I've been at church as long as I saw the sermon. Because being at church with God's people is so much more a holistic experience. Uh, I forgot to use this quote my dad used to tell me all the time. He never lived to see the fruit of it in my life, but it was very good. He always tell me this, son, Early is on time, and you military people know this one. Early is on time, on time is late, and late is a kick in the pants, right? He never saw that fruit in my life, but he always reminded me early is on time, on time is late, late's a kick in the pants. Let's see how attendance goes next week. Punctuality. All right, let's move on. So, James's appeal here is that for believers to seize every opportunity to increase their exposure to the Scriptures, to take advantage of every privileged occasion to hear the Word being taught and hear the Word being read. This is another reason at Christ Community Church we actually do reading services. This is why we want to do something countercultural and stretch the ability of our people to listen. When people hear about our reading service, they think it's crazy that you will never find in your church growth books, do a reading service. But everyone who's been at one says the same thing. There's something powerful sitting in a room with other people with a heart willing to obey and listening to God's Word being read to us. We want to grow. We want to be quick to listen. Do an inventory about your hunger and thirst for God, when was the last time you found yourself quick to listen or the desire thereof? So, James says, be quick to listen. Then he says, be slow to speak. You know, Zeno, Zeno, the philosopher from ancient Greece, said this. You might have wondered who said it. It was Zeno. We have two ears and one mouth. Therefore, we should listen twice as much as we speak. The Jewish people have an axiom. Men have two ears but one tongue that they should hear more than they speak. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in and keep it within proper bounds. (laughs) But reality is, our natural tendency is to reverse this order, isn't it? Quick to speak, slow to listen. And, And we sometimes take this tack to God's Word and come out with some bizarre understandings of it, and we try to live out of that and get confused when things don't go well. So, let me give you a couple that you might have heard. People say this, well, you know what the Bible says, that money is the root of all evil. Anyone ever heard that? The Bible does not say that at all, right? 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
But the Bible never says money is the root of all kinds, or the money is the root of evil, right? Here's another one more common. Well, you know what the Bible says? God helps those who help themselves. Good old American work ethic there. Wrong. If anything, the Bible teaches that God helps those who cannot help themselves. So we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. This is why James says in the third chapter of this book in verse 1, brothers, let not many of you become teachers. Now, James is not trying to discourage people from teaching God's Word as much as he's trying to discourage people from teaching as God's Word their words. He says, don't do that. Be slow to speak. So, be quick to hear the Word. Be slow to speak it. Thirdly, be slow to anger. Now, this one's a bit odd. When it comes to hearing the Word sincerely, we, we certainly understand being quick to listen, slow to speak, but where does be slow to anger fit in? So I think James's counsel here has to do with not getting angry when a brother or sister shows immaturity. See, this can easily happen in a Christian community. And James reminds us that our human anger rarely produces godliness in others. Now, this is a reminder to all of us who grow impatient with the perceived or real immaturities of brothers and sisters around us. Now, it's not, not necessarily a general admonition against anger per se, but that specific anger that can come in a Christian community when we don't meet each other's expectations. It's very interesting. I'll explain why I'm interpreting it this way just a bit, but it's very interesting that James implies anger toward one another is a hindrance to hearing the Word of God effectively in your life. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, that anger towards others is an actual hindrance to effectively hearing God's Word in your own life. Do you know why? Because when we're angry about the way someone else is conducting themselves, what tends to happen when we hear a sermon being preached? Oh, I wish Tim was here to hear that. Oh, no, 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 Jared, he needs to know this one. I wish Jared could hear that. We're thinking it applies to everyone else but yourself. He's saying, James is saying, no, 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 be slow to anger. Here's why I interpret it this way, verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, the righteousness that James is talking about here is not kind of a salvific righteousness as if somehow our anger will produce salvation in others, although sometimes we can conduct ourselves that way, right? If we just get angry enough as our non-believing family and friends, they'll become a Christian. That's not what James is saying. Righteousness has a dual meaning. It can mean this kind of salvific salvation righteousness, but it also can mean actual works, uh, behavior that, that's good, that pro to provides kind of the communal well-being. So it is a salvation, but it's also just right actions, and James is using it in that second sense. How easy it is to get angry with those with whom we disagree about the specifics of living the Christian life. Some enjoy freedoms, others don't. Some mature faster than others. Some see things one way, others will see things another way. Like listening to God's Word, being quick to listen, slow to speak, 
because anger rarely produces godly behaviors in others. He's talking about not questioning people's, the way they're living in these kind of areas of Christian freedom and letting our anger, our standards be imposed upon them. That's not going to produce godliness. The anger of man does not produce godliness in others. He's saying, look, if we are all seeking to listen and apply God's Word in the clear things in our life, then the unclear can be left to God and that brother or sister's own conscience. So be quick to hear the Word of God. Be slow to speak it. Make sure you understand it and be slow to anger because your anger does not produce God's righteousness, that transformative reality in other people's lives. So listen to the Word sincerely. But secondly, listen to the Word purely or with purity, verse 20, first half of verse 21, before God's Word can produce His righteousness. Now, that, that, now I'm talking about that, that salvific and transforming aspect that verse 21b talks about. We must renounce and put away sin in our lives. Those things that are clearly wrong and those things that seem right but issue from maybe wrong motives or selfish interests or personal preference. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, but the aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is not saying we need to be perfect, but it's a matter of the heart. What is our attitude towards those things? So maybe you are a new Christian, and you're still dealing with obvious and clearly sinful behaviors and actions, or you're a mature veteran believer and you're dealing with those more subtle, civilized sins, the call from James is the same, repent and receive. Therefore, verse 21 says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. So, before the Word continues to do that operative work in our lives, we need to turn from things that are displeasing to God. This is a pattern all through Scripture. So, you don't need to turn to them. They'll be on the screens, but I want you to write these down so you can look up later. We see this pattern all through Scripture. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, Paul writes this, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, notice this, to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Remember Jared speaking last week, verses 14 and 15, right? So put off the old self that's being corrupted by those deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians 3, 8 through 10, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of the Creator. Now, the next two I want to show you doesn't use the same language, but the same concept and principles there, and it's helpful for you to be able to see the principle even though the language shifts, okay? Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You see that pattern. You're doing something, you stop doing something, you start doing something else. Finally, 1 Peter 2, 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, 
hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. My friends, this is what I'm getting at. All Christians need to learn to turn from and turn to, put off, put on, put down, pick up. That is a pattern throughout all of Scripture. So often, we try to just turn to, but we haven't turned from. We try to put on, but we haven't put off. We try to pick up, but we haven't put down. Or we do the reverse. The Bible commands that we do them both. And you need to learn what that looks like in every sphere of your life. Relationally, what does it look like to put off the old man and put on the new man? Financially, what does it look like to turn from and turn to, right? Relationally, financially, emotionally, psychologically, all these ways, if we are going to live the life God calls us to, we need to learn how to do that. If you don't know how to do that in all these spheres of your lives, Number one, I, I want to encourage you just simply uh, sign up for the, the, the conference we have on biblical counseling for the next three months, August, September, October. That's what we're going to be doing. What does it look like to put off the old man and put on the new man in your marriage, in your workplace, in your school, in your finances? What does it look like to put down the old practices and pick up godliness? That's what we're going to be talking about. That's the pattern we see here that James is talking about. Therefore, put away this filthiness and rampant wickedness and then receive. That's our last point, listening to the Word of God genuinely. So, James is encouraging these believers that they need to receive the Word of God with meekness. And notice, this isn't the first time James has said something like this. Now, remember, the hearers would have been hearing this all at one shot. So, when James says, receive with meekness, he could have easily put in there, look, just like you receive wisdom back in verse 5 when you asked for it, just like you received good gifts back in verse 17 when you needed them, now receive the implanted Word, which according to verse 18, gave birth to them in the first place and brought them into new life. So once you've done all these things, you've been hearing the Word, you've been really bringing it in, you've been slow to speak it because you want to make sure you're careful with it, you're not, you're not judging others, you're just listening, you're applying it, you're turning away from these things, now you're receiving it as the implanted Word. And this is a concept that James's original hearers would have immediately thought about the new covenant promise that God gave His people in Jeremiah 31. You see, the prophet Jeremiah he noted the continued failure of the people of God to live up to the external demands of the law. They just couldn't do it. They constantly failed. And so, on God's behalf, the prophet announces that God's going to make a new arrangement, that God's going to change everything, that He's going to change their hearts. He's going to place His law into His people. He's going to do a new interior work that would have to be done, giving people a new heart. So, Jeremiah 31 uh, 33 and Ezekiel 36 says it. It's on the screens here. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will implant my law, in other words. I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Look at Ezekiel 36, same idea. And I will give you a new heart. I will implant it in you, and a new spirit. I will put it within you. I will implant it in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
by James using this term, look, the word that's implanted in you, he's reminding these believers that those wonderful promises have come true in them. But it's a reminder. It is a reminder that the word that has saved them cannot be ignored after they've been converted. You can't just receive it and then ignore it. It has implanted in them. It's a a permanent part of the believer, an inseparable part of who they are, a guiding and commanding presence within. But for the Word of God to do its work in the life of the Christian, there must be a sincere, pure, genuine desire to hear the Word, to turn from a lifestyle that contradicts God's Word and receive it continually, making yourself available to it, to understand its precepts, its principles, to live your life in submission to the Word. And James says, when you do that, it will save your soul. Now, James probably is referring to the ultimate salvation we get, but I think he's also referring to, given what he says later in the letter, that it's about you being transformed more and more into being the image like Jesus. You see, it's not us saving ourselves by doing these things, but by putting ourselves in a sphere where we're hearing the Word and we're receiving the Word, it transforms us and sanctifies us. That's what that word save means. It saves us in that way because it makes us more like Christ because we want to hear God's Word. So, this week, as you're going through your week, do an inventory. Is that you? Are you wanting to hear the Word? Are you wanting to turn away from these things in your life? Are you wanting to receive the Word? James says, if you do, it will transform you. And another thing that, again, an appropriate time, I think any passage of Scripture is appropriate to conclude with the Lord's Supper, but we have before us a a symbol of very what James is saying. As we receive the elements, it saves our soul, right? Again, not in a salvation, salvation way, but it continues to transform us. Just as we receive the Word, we are going to receive the bread and the cup. This is a reminder that this is what we are saying is that our lives are sustained by Christ, right? Our lives are not sustained by the things of this world. Our lives are sustained by Christ. And so monthly, we do this thing to remind us as a church that our life is Christ, right, who is the Word of God. So for those who are going to serve, I want to encourage you to come on up. Uh, We are going to have communion. If you have children, come on down. Um, Our servers will pray for them. If you don't want them to partake of the elements, they will be prayed for. Um, If you have a gluten allergy, please come to this line because we have a gluten-free alternative. Uh, The servers will pronounce a blessing over you uh, as you take the bread and dip it in the cup. And we ask that you do your own business with the Lord when you're ready. Come on down, and they will serve you. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning to jump into these three verses of James, to be reminded of hearing Your Word sincerely, purely, and with just a genuine desire to receive it. I pray, Lord, You'd continue to transform us. As James says, as the Word is able to save our souls, we thank You. Father, we thank You for the finished work of Christ that this Lord's Supper represents both his life and his death for our benefit. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.